what you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes Well, you might find Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Every Monday at 10 a.m., that's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time, but since we're global, could be, you've got to check what time it is in your part of the world. And there are lots of ways to get a hold of us. Uh, you can dial in and listen on your phone at uh, 424-203-8046. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on the uh, Progressive Radio Network Facebook page. Sometimes we want you to go there when we're showing visuals, not today. You can go there, but there are no visuals. And you can catch all of our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. And... You can download our new app for your iPhone or Android. So lots of ways to get to us, which is why we're one of the most listened to Internet radio stations. Anyway, uh, what's up for today? I want to talk about does creation come from within or without? So what does that mean? Get to that in a minute. But it was inspired by an article I saw Uh, Late last week in the New York Post, apparently this is the 50th anniversary of 2001 A Space Odyssey by Kubrick and Clark. Talk about that in a minute. But before we do that, and where does creation come from, which that movie takes a position about, key idea about the movie that nobody talks about. But uh, before that, I want to just mention some books I'm listening to. I'm too... uh, (laughs) I have attention deficit disorder or something like that. Very hard to read a book. Although I have been reading some Raymond Chandler short stories. Uh, Chandler and Hammett are the two great 1930s, 40s mystery writers, 20s, 30s, 40s. And my mother's father was a mystery writer and used to publish in the same magazines as Dashiell Hammett. So I'm sort of getting caught up. I'm going to do some editing of some of his, my grandfather's writing and do some, maybe get it uh, published again. But like his thing was not the tough guy detective. His thing was the trick. And for example, uh, so body is found in the bay, salt water. Did he drown in the bay or did he drown in fresh water and they dumped him in the bay? And he was the first one who used that as a device. The New York coroner was figuring that out. And the moment he had the answer, my grandmother got the answer from the coroner's office, rushed home. My grandfather finished typing the story and dropped it in the mail. So he'd be the first one to use that device. Anyway, so I mostly listen to books. And on the bus coming over here, I was listening to Reality is Not What It Seems by Carlo Ravelli, Italian. And a beautiful book so far. Not that far into it, but uh, beautifully written. 
and it's about uh, quantum gravity. And he he's on the side of quantum loop gravity, which I that's I take that position over string theory. <laughs> Actually, there's a Big Bang theory about that, where let's see, Leonard hooks up again with what's her name, the woman physicist in the in the series, and so they're dating again and. They're talking about, you know, maybe we should get serious. And then it comes out that she's into quantum loop gravity and Sheldon's into string theory. They're two great rival theories. And Leonard says, what difference does it make? And she says, well, how are we going to raise the children? (laughs) Like, you know, what religion are we going to be? And then he says, well, when they're old enough, they can make their own decision. She says, they can't make their own decision. They're children. And uh, so she walks out. She says, this is a deal breaker. Uh, and she breaks up with him. Anyway, they're actually, if you're into this, this is a beautiful book to start. And he goes back to Democritus. You know, he goes back and starts with the ancient Greeks and their theories and, and what's in it for me is how much, you know, okay, Democritus, the atom. The atom is like billiard bo- indivisible billiard balls. Well, it turns out it's much more sophisticated than that, and all of Democritus's books are lost. Can't believe how sloppy some people were over the millennia to lose, you know, like 99% of the writings of the classical world. But anyway... We have quotes in from other writers, and he starts there. He's going to bring us all the way up to date. So I'll report in occasionally where I am with the book. Speaking of which, I'm about three-quarters of the way through Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. I'm slow, right? This book came out a while ago. But uh, da Vinci's now 55 years old, which is pretty far along in where I am in the book. And, again, beautiful book, just rich with information. And you you grow, I did, you grow up thinking you know about something, Democritus, the atom. Uh, and it turns out we know a lot more than that. And so I'm lucky in my teaching. I teach, I participate with a team of about 10 people who are constantly changing because a lot of them are young part-timers and they move on and we get new ones. But a team of about 10 people teaching architectural history, which includes cultural history. And we, um, you know, are continually learning new things from my young colleagues. So, for example, when I went to school, Vitruvius was, who's the only author from the ancient world whose text we have on architecture. And I don't think it's we should be paying all that attention to it. It's just the one we happen to have. But uh, I, <laughs> when I was in school, it was firmness, commodity, and delight. Well, it turns out my young colleagues have actually read it in Latin. So uh, there's a lot more there, which I learned from them. I'm reading the, or listening to The Square and the Tower about networks by Niall Ferguson. So Niall Ferguson is a really important figure 
just finished this book on civilization, and then I've after this one I got to do the British Empire. But you know he's on um, talk, he's on TV news networks, and I don't know what his politics are. I guess I'll eventually find out. But I had not really been following him, and he's written these major books. Not too impressed by some things in the Tower and the Square. It's about the difference between hierarchies and networks. And hopefully he's going to be better on networks. But in And it begins with the Illuminati. So that's really cool. So apparently they really did exist. But in talking about hierarchies, he goes through this development of uh, human uh, organization, you know, from tribal to whatever. And... It's reading like the back of a cereal box. I mean, um, he could have been more sophisticated about that. I'm also in the middle of Nassim Talib, Skin in the Game. So he came to great notoriety with his book, The Black Swan. And what he's into is how, mm, shall we say, uh, unlikely things do happen. <laughs> and Skin in the Game is about we shouldn't trust people or be interested in people who don't have skin in the game. And if you think about the financial crisis, uh, in the old days, the banking firms like uh, Goldman Sachs were owned by a uh, half dozen or dozen partners so if they had $12 billion of their own to invest, that was a billion from each of the partners. And if they lost half their money, that, you know, a given partner would say, whoa, you just lost me $500 million. But when they become public companies and become big banks that are public companies stock with stockholders and maybe the top people have some of their own money in it. But someone can be a trader at one of these companies and lose a lot of money and get fired and get a job somewhere else. But the money they lost was not their own. So uh, Talib is contemptuous of that. And uh, and he, he comes, of course, as a real tough guy. You know, he says, don't trust bankers who aren't weightlifters kind of thing. And so the book's a lot of fun, and I'm not sure how coherent it is. I'm only about a quarter of the way into it, but the way he bounces around is uh, a joy to read or listen to anyway. And I just finished Enlightenment Now, which I strongly recommend, Stephen Pinker. And it's a position where I've taken, if you go to my YouTube channel and uh, or search on John Lobel, Technological Optimism. And <laughs> it's a lecture I gave a while back. I'm part of a seminar group, and I became annoyed that we meet monthly and have a lecture every time and then discussion. So it's an hour lecture, an hour discussion. So it's a chance, you know, to be with some interesting and diverse people and talk about ideas although a lot of them are retired lawyers. But, you know, they're people from all kinds of backgrounds. And 
a lot of the lectures were, uh, shall I say, technologically pessimistic about global warming, uh, loss of privacy, identity theft, all this kind of, um, you know, our new technologies are bringing us to rack and ruin. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, everything I've heard at these lectures is true, but I think it's maybe 10% of the story. The other 90% is in the past 20 years, one billion people have exited abject poverty, like less than a dollar a day, into, uh, you know, starting middle class, like even maybe possibly buying an automobile. And, oh, my God, we can't allow that. Let's get them back into poverty. So I approached the group and said, could I give this lecture? And uh, they did. So a version of it is online. So here comes Steven Pinker in Enlightenment Now. And he says that for out, for throughout thousands of years of human history, we were poor, like not enough to eat. People were smaller, <laughs> even, you know, well-to-do people because they had less to eat. And um, what's happened in the past 200 years and then more so even the past 20 years, is that we have entered an age of affluence. And the book is filled with graphs, which I had to download the PDF to get because I'm listening to it on audio. But he goes into, there's like 50 to 90% improvements in violent crime, death from war, um, pollution, you know, we have this fantasy that pollution came with industrialization. Well, you know, horses aren't that neat. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, they dropped dead, you know. So not only was there horsemen who were piled in the streets in the old days, but there were dead horses. So he goes on and on about this uh, statistical improvement in just about everything. And, of course, information's an obvious one where we all have access to huge swaths of the world's information, whereas 50 years ago, only the rich had that. You know, you had to be able to go to a, you know, be in a big city with a good library or go to an Ivy College to have access to a substantial library. Now we all have all that on our phones. Anyway, that's some of my recent reading, and I appreciate it when I get recommendations from other people, so I'll try to keep you guys up to date with what I'm doing. But today I want to talk about, does creation come from without or within? So what do I mean by that? So I'm looking at this article in the New York Post on this being the 50th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I hope everybody's seen it. You know, I like to uh, needle my students about, there's a lot of books they're never going to read, but they should at least see the key movies. And I can argue with my faculty colleagues, what are those key movies? But 2001 is going to be on most lists, uh, you know, if you have a dozen movies. 
And so what's it about? So opening scene, we have these ape men. We have these uh, pre-human hominids, these hairy, but not really looking like gorillas or chimpanzees. Uh, and they're fighting over a water hole, and all of a sudden appears the monolith, the thing. So there's this thing that's about, oh, um, four feet by one foot by nine feet tall. And that's it. That's all there is. And so one of the, you know, they're scared and then they approach it. One of the apes touches it. And the implication is zap. You know, uh, he becomes proto-human. This is going to become human beings. And he picks up a uh, skeletal jawbone, uses it as a weapon, and then tosses it in the air. And as it rotates in the air, it becomes a satellite. So this is how we got our humanness. We then, in uh, 2001, which is already long ago, but the movie's from the 70s. So they thought we'd be further along by then. Anyway, <clears throat> we're in 2001. And on the moon, they come across a monolith. Well, these are some kind of beacons set up around the solar system by this alien intelligence, we surmise. And they now have an expedition to go off because there's one on one of the moons of Jupiter that they've gotten signals from. So we've got to go check that one out. So that's the, that's the movie, The Space Trip. And there's a bunch of astronauts, uh, only one of whom survives, and they they are up, you know, awake, while two of them are awake, I think, while a half a dozen others are in suspended animation. And HAL, I forget what it's an acronym for, but the supercomputer that runs the, helps run the ship, has killed all the other astronauts and tries to kill the two who are awake because it went haywire, but it says, this mission's too important, <clears throat> excuse me, to leave to these astronauts. And then uh, uh, the surviving astronaut has to decommission Hal, remove his memory, its memory cores, and complete the mission uh, on his own. And then we go into this mysterious, he's an old man in an antique room, and then there's a light show. And then the, all of which is, what's this about? But then the end is kind of clear, where there's a fetus in a bubble hovering above the earth. And this is the star child, the new stage of humanity, and that's where the movie ends. Now, what's bothering me about the movie? And that is uh, these monoliths that our humanists did not come from within, from our evolution, from our efforts, from perhaps a focus of our will. Um, Robert Thurman likes to propose a Buddhist notion 
of evolution in which our drive to be more human, more compassionate, more what we can be as humans is what drives our evolution. Coming from within or from the, uh, in Buddhism, the joint consciousness of all beings, but not from an outside force. So this monolith, you know, that we come from this monolith, our humanness, and it's not something we could have done on our own. So that's the position of the movie. And it, you know, it's a widespread position I'll get to in a moment. But that's what it's about. And no one talks about that. So we read, for example, in the Bible, there are several versions of how we got created in Genesis. But then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So there are various translations of that, but they're all uh, similar. And the notion here is that the earth, the dust of the earth, is dead. And God makes out of dust or earth or clay this inanimate human being. doesn't have the breath of life, doesn't have a spirit, doesn't have a soul. And that comes from God, from without, and is breathed into it. The earth itself does not have this living, spiritual, intelligent breath of life. That comes from without. Well, we can contrast this biblical position to uh, several Eastern positions in Shintoism. And the great Shinto shrine, so I approach this from the point of view of architecture, being an architect, architectural historian. And in Shintoism, which is sort of, we might say, the native indigenous Japanese religion. So famously, when MacArthur, after uh, the allies or the United States conquered Japan, first thing you do is a census. And famously, when you add up the Shintos, Buddhists, and Christians in Japan, you get more people than there were Japanese. Point being, many Japanese are one or two or three of these. And in a certain way, all Japanese are Shinto by birth. Shintoism is what you are. You are born into this uh, spiritual entity of the Japanese people, the Japanese land, the Japanese culture. You're Shinto. Uh, then uh, a young woman might become Christian around the time of being a teenager or a marriage because it introduces modesty. And an older person might become Buddhist as they're approaching death because Buddhism is well-suited to the transition to uh, through death. Anyway, this Shintoism, in this Shintoism, the human beings are natural creatures 
and spirit is in all things. So that human, spiritual, um, nature, human, and spirit are all one integrated things. They are not three separate things as they are in the biblical tradition where they are metaphysically different. There's God in the biblical tradition. There's God creates nature, the earth, the animals, and creates human beings which are different from superior to and have domain over nature and the animals. So whereas in the biblical tradition they are three separate things, in the Shinto tradition they're one integrated thing. So there's a different notion now. So human beings emerge through evolution, um, and most cultures recognize that, you know, we're animals. We've got bones, ribs, lungs, heart, blood, like other animals. And the specialness that emerges in human beings is something that's already there in the earth. Spirit is in all things. And so the most famous Shinto shrine is Isi Shrine. And it's a, a compound with a wall around it. And then there are uh, several buildings, two main ones. And they're built, everything's built out of wood, very famously no nails, you know, elegant Japanese joinery to put it together. But it's not finished. It's not varnished. And the columns that support it sit right on the ground. And so when you do that, <clears throat> the columns are going, if they're wood, they're going to suck up moisture like a straw, which is why you seal, preserve, and keep it away from the ground. But in Isi Shrine, they don't because it's meant to rot. And so it's this beautiful finished wood when it's built. And after 20 years, it's all full of mold and fungus and mildew, turned brown, and they rebuild it. They build a new one next to it. And then they tear down the old one. And every 20 years, they rebuild it so that it naturally decays back into, dissolves back into, again becomes a part of nature, as do we. And so uh, rather than trying to resist this natural phenomena, there is a celebration of it. And the... Um, Think of that in contrast to the, oh, the uh, Parthenon by the Greeks. It's 2,500 years old. It, you know, had a bad experience in the um, uh, late 1700s when it blew up. Uh, it was used to store, you know, explosives during a civil war. But it's still there. And... Um, we celebrate its permanence. And we can think of this contrast in uh, numerous ways. So I mentioned Shintoism. We also see in China and in Japan Taoism. Uh, my favorite translation of the Tao Te Ching, 
is by fine in English, and it opens, The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. And we have um, we have this contrast with uh, Western notions. Let me see if I can find... Um, Let's look at my notes here. Something I wanted to bring. Let's see if I have it. Oh, no, no. I got it somewhere. Hang on. Um, let's take a break. And uh, we'll, uh, I'll look for these notes. So this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. And we'll be back after these announcements. You're listening to... PRN, Progressive Radio Network. Once again, the New York Times comes out with an article exposing the uselessness of taking vitamin supplements. They even say that they could be harmful for you. Join me as I dismantle the New York Times and the author's claims point by point. The powers that be must really think that you're stupid and that doctors like me are not aware of the overwhelming science supporting the benefits of nutritional supplements for disease prevention and cure. Remember, tune in to me, Dr. Michael Wald, on Ask the Blood Detective this Saturday at 1 p.m. This is our chance to set the record straight. Progressive Radio Network is a thinking person's network for our world's progressive visionaries and stakeholders and great thinkers to assemble on a commercial, free, and listener-supported network. Our provocative hosts speak freely and passionately on intriguing and urgent topics such as health and news and politics and women's issues and philosophy and more that directly impact our lives. Progressive Radio Network takes chances. Our voices and ideas are not always welcomed by corporate media. So Progressive Radio Network is a very important outlet for these great thinkers. Are you interested in growing a greener future? Do you enjoy healthy, nutritious food? Would you like to learn how to grow your own organic oasis in an easy and efficient way? I'm Jackie Marie Beyer, the humble host of the Organic Gardener podcast, where I talk with amazing guests who are all using sustainable, earth-friendly practices. I interview backyard gardeners, market farmers, and people who have green businesses related to food. I'd love it if you'd join us on the Progressive Radio Network, coming on Monday evenings at 7 p.m. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Progressive Radio Network, the number one network for those who care about the truth. It's Beatty Convretos, host of the Ask Beatty Show. 
Audio Now. The Progressive Radio Network now has an app. All you have to do is go to the App Store on your cell phone and search the Progressive Radio Network. You can listen live to PRN shows and also listen to past archive shows. So go to your App Store and download it right now. Welcome back. This is John LaBelle, and you're listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM, the Progressive Radio Network. And boy, there are lots of cool shows on this station, or what? And one of the fun things is listen to a show. Uh, I'm a fan of, <clears throat> besides Gary Knoll and his Progressive Radio Hour, is it, as well as his noon in New York nutrition show. And nutrition and politics. <laughs> Strange bedfellows. But I'm a big fan of Mike Fader. And go to, uh, well, now on your app or go to podbean.com uh, and you can hear all the back shows. So, you know, I'll just do like, you know, four or five hours of Mike Fader while I'm doing something else. <laughs> just go through them. And remember, you can do all this in your car. So, just take your phone and go to the app or go to your browser, go to prn.fm, and then just uh, plug it in or Bluetooth it to the car radio. I I have an older car, 2008, and so I've got all these wires, you know, like, like I've got into the power supply. It used to be the cigarette lighter, right? Uh, I've got plugged in so I can keep my phone charged. And then uh, I have uh, another wire that goes to the auxiliary, and I plug that into the phone, and then I can listen to books or PRN or whatever else I'm listening to over the, or YouTubes over the car radio. And (laughs) when I get into a rented car, all of a sudden, something from my phone starts playing. It's Bluetoothing. (laughs) Why did, how how do you turn that off? (laughs) So I haven't learned how to use Bluetooth on a car radio because my mind doesn't have any. I don't rent cars that often, but I'm going to have to figure it out. Anyway, we're talking today about creation from within or without. So if you think about it, uh, I'm going to pick on somebody now, which is Eric Von Donegan. And Von Donegan is the one who wrote this uh, incredibly influential book, Chariots of the Gods, and uh, to his credit, it's Chariots of the Gods, question mark. But anyway, what he does is look at um, the art of mostly uh, early high civilizations, you know, the earliest pyramids, the earliest uh, whatever, all over the world, Egypt, Mesopotamia, uh, Mesoamerica, and he finds depictions of what looks like people with bubbles over their head. And his claim is these are space aliens, and that's, you know, spacesuits. 
because they can't breathe our air. And his contention is that people were these primitive, you know, uncivilized creatures. And the high civilizations that enabled the pyramids and the other high civilizations were the technology for that was brought to us by space aliens. So human beings were too dumb to figure out agriculture, putting one stone on top of another, cutting a stone, and space aliens came and showed us how to do it. So that's von Donegan's notion. And interestingly enough, the book didn't really go anywhere. And of all people, Carl Sagan uh, wrote a book with a Russian radio astronomer, Sokovsky, called Intelligent Life in the Universe. And the book is just a broad survey of all kinds of futuristic ideas. And in that book, he mentions von Donegan's theory, or they mention von Donegan's theory. And uh, Sagan later uh, regretted what he had done and said, I should have been, if I was going to mention it at all, I should have been more critical. But anyway, he mentioned von Donegan's theory, and that's where I first encountered it. And then all of a sudden, von Donegan's book became an underground sensation. And it was kicked off by, uh, I think, uh, Carl Sagan's Intelligent Life in the Universe. Well, Sagan went on to do that uh, TV series Cosmos. He did a book, Cosmos, and um, became a major popularizer of science. Tragically, he died young. He was only 62. So he was born in 1934. You know, if he lived to be really old, he could still be with us, but he's not, and died in 1996. But he's a legendary culture figure, and I had the good fortune to interview him. I This is before anybody else had heard of him. The, the Intelligent Life in the Universe was an underground book, and he was a professor of astronomy at Cornell, and I drove up and spent an afternoon with him. Somewhere I have the tapes. And interestingly enough, if I want to pick on him, um, he says something that uh, he might regret is on tape, and that is, I asked him about quantum theory, and he said, irrelevant. He says, uh, uh, relativity applies to astronomical scales. Quantum theory applies to subatomic scales and is irrelevant for astronomy. Well, then black holes happened. <laughs> and uh, so quantum theory is now very much a part of astronomy and of course, the Big Bang is a quantum event, and how the Big Bang happened as a quantum event uh, determines everything that happened, well, is uh, related to, I don't know if we're deterministic in quantum world, uh, is related to everything that happened subsequently, and uh, Hawking even implies maybe the way we observe the 
the Big Bang changes the way what we the universe and us. Uh, so quantum theory is very much involved in cosmology. But anyway, uh, intelligent life in the universe surveys all kinds of cool stuff. One of the things is they talk about a type one, two, three, and maybe four. I don't remember the exact types. Civilizations. He says a type one civilization uses all of its planet's energy for intelligent activity. A type two civilization uses all of its sun's energy for intelligent activity, etc. And now, what does that mean? Well, he um, popularizes something that uh, had been around in astronomy circles, but this is how the rest of us learned about it from this incredible book. What's called a Dyson sphere. So if you think about it, uh, we're becoming more and more solar energy. Uh, Peter Diamandis thinks that, he says, we're, I think it's now, what is it? Seven, we're down to six. Uh, um, Diamandis and... Um, Ray Kurzweil, point out, we're six doublings away. The amount of solar energy we use doubles every two years. We're six doublings away from getting 100% of our energy from solar, or at least having solar capacity be equal to 100% of our uh, energy uses of today. Now, what we're going to do when it's dark... uh, that's an issue of storage and stuff like that. But uh, but if you think about it, look at a, imagine a little map of the solar system. There's the sun and there's the earth, and the earth is a speck. So 99.999999% of the sun's energy is radiating in all directions, not the earth. <laughs> only a tiny portion is falling on the earth, and only a tiny portion of that can we capture. But... Freeman Dyson suggested, so it's called a Dyson sphere. What if we take uh, uh, a planet, a big planet like Jupiter, dismantle it, and out of its material build a big sphere that surrounds the sun? Then we could capture all of its energy. (laughs) So this is thinking in terms of big-scale engineering. So that's a type 2 civilization for Sagan and Sokovsky. And you'll find, for example, Dyson spheres appearing in uh, Star Trek. There's a point where they are about to get trapped in one. Scotty saves them. Scotty, and this is a um, a next generation type Star Trek. Scotty uh, had got caught in an accident, and so he suspended himself through uh, an incompleted beaming. And they managed to complete him, and he saves the future what, Enterprise from getting trapped inside the Dyson Sphere, and then he goes off again on his little capsule on his own adventures. So great stories. Uh, anyway, uh, so Sagan is popularizing von Donegan here, and von Donegan is, you know, or the von Donneganites. The people, and if this is good, I mean, their TV is full of those, you know, those uh, National Geographic-like stations. I don't know why National Geographic does this, but those type TV channels do uh, these 
did space aliens build the pyramids type things. Whenever I lecture about the pyramids, uh, one of the first the Egyptian pyramids, one of the first things I said is there were no space aliens, okay? <laughs> it's not that hard to build a pyramid. You just need a lot of people and long ropes and um, inclined planes. So human beings could do it. And we don't need space aliens levitating the stones. And if there were space aliens, why didn't they, you know, why such primitive technology? Why don't we see any advanced technology in these ancients? Anyway, long argument. But no space aliens. But the Von Donegan position, the space alien position, is that human beings are too dumb to do it themselves. It was done by... Um, Space aliens. Well, there's a lot of uh, back and forth between from inside or from outside. And I wrote a book on the great American architect, Louis Kahn. And Kahn is maybe sometimes regarded as the second most important modern arch American architect after Frank Lloyd Wright. And Kahn was... Um, gave us both a wonderful buildings, the Salk Center in La Jolla, California, Kimball Museum in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, among other buildings, a couple of buildings at Yale, but also a spiritual philosophy. And there hasn't been that much... Um, attention paid to a spiritual philosophy. And I think because most historian, architectural architects, architectural historians, architectural theorists are, pardon my picking on them, materialists. And so in encountering Kahn's beautiful poetic spiritual philosophy, they say, Oh, yes, you know, he said these poetic things, and then let's go back to talking about the buildings. Well, I did a book on his spiritual philosophy. It's called Between Silence and Light, Spirit in the Architecture of Louis Icahn, published by Shambhala, who's a uh, terrific Buddhist publisher. So they do spiritual books and lifestyle books, but they focus a lot on Buddhism. And what I did was, Khan did not write very much, but he lectured a lot. And a lot of the lectures were recorded and transcribed. So I took a whole bunch of his lectures and boiled them down to the, the ideal Khan lecture, you know, the ultimate Khan lecture. And it has a a um, sort of like a genesis. So, looking at the contents, begins with joy and then touch and then wonder and then realization, the immeasurable and immeasurable, knowledge, order, etc. Building all the way up to buildings. Well, in my editing, it opens with I felt, first of all, joyous. I felt that which joy is made of, and I realized that joy itself must have been the impelling force 
that which was there before we were, and that somehow joy was in every ingredient of our making. Uh, Just to go on a bit. When the world was an ooze without any shape or direction, there must have been this force of joy that prevailed everywhere and that was reaching out to express. And somehow the word joy became the most unmeasurable word. Well, that's a totally different position from Genesis. In other words, Genesis says the impelling force is the Spirit of God, and that comes from without and is breathed into dead matter. Khan says the impelling force, he's naming it joy, but, and of course it's beyond naming, uh, and it is in, it is a part of all things. It's in every ingredient of our making. So joy is the impelling force and is in all things and therefore in us. It's not something that comes from without. So here are these two positions. Um, That of von Donegan. Um, of 2001 A Space Odyssey that we are ape-like creatures and our humanness comes from without, from the monoliths brought by an extraterrestrial intelligence that is perhaps going to guide us to the next stage of evolution, the star child at the end of the movie, and then we will join that great intelligence. That's an ongoing theme in Arthur C. Clarke. He is uh, one of his perhaps greatest novel that brought him to broad literary attention was Childhood's End, a novel from the late 1950s in which it's a happy, successful future, and uh, the human race has become one world order, We're all very civilized. We've become vegetarians, no longer kill animals. And and then these big motherships show up. And certain um, people, leaders, are delegated to come aboard and uh, communicate. And these overlords... Uh, hang around for a long time, maybe it's 20 years. Don't reveal what they're there for and have a very friendly relationship with the us earthlings. But then uh, they, uh, they said, we have something very sad to tell you. Uh, we are not the true advanced beings. We're just their messengers. But you people are ready um, And we're going to take all the children, you know, everybody under the age of whatever, and uh, bring them to where they're going to enter the next stage and become part of this universal, vast, whatever, you know, advanced spiritual intelligence civilization. Sorry about that. And they scoop up all the children and take off. And then 
uh, whether it's biological or just the spirit being crushed, nobody has any more children. So the human race dies off. But its seedlings have gone on to become part of this larger universal thing. So Arthur C. Clarke has, you know, had that kind of position. And if you haven't read Clark, you know, do so. And if you're really into 2001, there are a couple of, um, you can read the novel, you know, what was it all about? What was that monolith? And so <clears throat> what you do is you read the novelization of the movie. Arthur C. Clarke did the screenplay along with Kubrick for uh, the movie 2001. So what you do is you read the, uh, you read the, um, um, novelization, and then there are sequel novelizations. So you read those, and you'll have a good idea what um, what it was about. But I don't think there's that much of a mystery. I think the movie is uh, pretty clear. So I wanted to um, sort of wrap this Wrap this thinking about does creation come from within or without? You know, are we too stupid to do it ourselves and we need an external force to come and jumpstart us to the next level? Or is that spark there within us all along and it unfolds and manifests? might think, uh, thinking of the spark, if you're online, hop over to Google Image and call up uh, the creation of Adam from Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling, the most famous panel in the ceiling. And there is Adam, uh, sort of inert, and he's reaching out his finger, and God is there with a host of angels and a lot of big swirl of uh, cloth and is reaching his finger out and zap, you know, he's putting the human soul into Adam. So that seems to be taking the uh, creation comes from without position, but look at it more carefully. And a few decades ago, something interesting was discovered that if you look carefully at that swirling cloth that God and his host of angels is wrapped up in, it's the section of a human brain. <laughs> so is Michelangelo saying God is within the human imagination? So yes, you know, God is the source of the spark, but human beings is the source of God. So is that what Michelangelo is saying? Where does he stand on this position? And <clears throat> I was looking through my notes for something that might be here somewhere, but I'm not finding it. So I'm going to do the best I can from memory. And I began uh, by mentioning the Tao Te Ching. And in there, there's uh, a passage. Do you think you can take over and improve the universe? I do not think it can be done. If you tried to improve it, you would ruin it. The universe is sacred. Okay, that's the position of the Tao Te Ching. Now let's look at a quote from Ray Kerr's files, 
the singularity is near. And Kurzweil is perhaps, well, I'm pretty sure, the most prominent futurist of our time. And his future predictions tend to be uh, pretty right on because what he does is he takes Moore's law seriously. And doing so, that tells him how powerful computation is going to be at what point in the future. And so what he does is he says, well, what computers, what will computers be able to do in five years, 10 years, 20 years? And he says, it may only take a quarter of a millennium, 250 years, to go from delivering messages by horseback. Think about it. It's only a couple hundred years ago when, you know, before they laid the, the transatlantic cable, it's about 150 years ago. Before that, it was six weeks to get a message from New York to London and six weeks to get an answer back. How'd you run a war? How'd you run a company? How'd you buy and sell stock with a 12-week delay? But that's how they, you know, that's what it was like before the telegram becomes universal. Of course, it started earlier than that, but took a while for the transatlantic cable. And uh, only 250 years to saturating the solar system with intelligent activity. We're going to be sprinkling sensors and uh, CPUs everywhere throughout the solar system. It's a Big Bang Theory episode in which they bounce a laser off a mirror left behind on the moon. And he says, and then from there, we will go on to saturate the universe with intelligence and then maybe even generate new universes. Very different attitude from what we see in Lao Tzu's The Tao Te Ching. So does creation come from within or without? Something to think about. So let's wrap up. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries. Find us here every Monday at 10 a.m. on PRN.com, Progressive Radio Network. See you next week. 